This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Chris Grosso. Chris is a public speaker, writer, spiritual director, and recovering addict. Also a self-taught musician, Chris has been writing, recording, and touring since the mid-1990s. Chris is passionate about his work with people struggling with drug addictions and leads groups in detoxes, yoga studios, rehabs, youth centers, hospitals, and festivals worldwide. He is a member of the advisory board for Drugs Over Dinner, hosts the Indie Spiritualist podcast on the MindPod Network, and is the author of the book, The Indie Spiritualist. With Sounds True, Chris Grasso has released a new book called Everything Mind, What I've Learned About Hard Knocks, Spiritual Awakening, and the Mind-Blowing Truth of It All. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Chris and I spoke about shadow work and how to transform self-judgment and self-loathing. We also talked about how complete brokenness was the beginning of Chris's deep recovery from addiction and the relationship between spiritual awakening and recovery in his own life. Chris also offered several practices from his new book, Everything Mind, and shared with us about why he's so passionate about being totally genuine in his communication as a path to connect meaningfully with other people. Here's my conversation with Chris Grasso. Chris, I'm often asked by people, where's the next generation of spiritual teachers? Who are they? Who are the up-and-comers? And quite honestly, your name is one of the names I offer on a short list of next-generation spiritual teachers. And I'd be curious to know here at the beginning of our conversation what you think might be unique to this next generation of spiritual teachers in the world? Mm, well, that's a great question to start with, and, uh, and it means a lot that my name would be on that list for you, so thank you. Um, you know, when, when you say next generation, there, there's two camps that come to mind for me. Um, I think of, how do I even word this? Um, maybe you're more popular um, user-friendly teachers, and, and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And then there's also the other camp of maybe grittier teachers that aren't quite as known, um, and I, I guess I would fall into that the latter category. Um, but I feel like with this next generation, um, what I've personally been noticing is a shift away from a lot of the overly, you know, the overemphasis on, on the light side of spirituality, the, the love and light, 
which of course is part of it. Um, but when it that's all that's emphasized, um, I've heard various people use phrases like mindfulness or uh, fast food for the mind, things of that nature. And I, actually, these are older generation teachers I've heard use that. So I thought that was a little funny. But what I find with with at least the next generation teachers, I, I guess that I resonate with, is that they're heading more in the direction of uh, shadow work, and and not just shadow work, but bringing that darkness into the path as well. Um, so you you still have the light, of course, but you also have the dark, and you're integrating the two on the path, and that's been very important in my own life with my own history of uh, addictions and and other you know things that virtually brought me uh, to death. Um, but anyway, so. I think that's it. It's it's a more raw and and real and uh, ragged and vulnerable um, spirituality. And and I want to be very clear and say that that's it's not that that has not been available from teachers of the older generation because that's where I learned it from a lot of the older generation teachers. But you know, I, I guess with any as with any time period in spirituality, it. it ebbs and flows and and it shifts and again this is just my perspective but it really does seem like it's getting back into the the grit of spirituality of the the work that we really don't want to do often because it's difficult it it can be painful and uh, and again vulnerable but it's the work that really needs to be done at least in my experience and and that of many I've learned from and and talked with um in order to I guess really progress uh, on our path and and reconnect with the the divine or the sacred within ourselves again this is just my experience and and I and I won't beat that dead beat that horse but I want to make it very clear up front that when I share I just share from my own experience nothing I say is a definitive truth it's or I don't mean it as a definitive truth it's just it's what I know today and that's where I'm coming from so I want to tease out a couple of things you said. The first yeah. is that these two camps, we could say, the user-friendly types and the gritty types. And I just wanted to mm-hmm. go on record, Chris, saying, I find you user-friendly and gritty at the same time. Well, I appreciate that, actually. I, that means a lot because I I want to be as accessible as I can to as many people as possible. So I don't go out of my way to write or offer my teachings a certain way. I just think with my experience, a lot of it touches on that darker aspect. Yeah. No, I know what you meant. I just wanted to say that I find you user. Well, I appreciate that very much. Thank you. But I want to tease out your comments about doing shadow work. Mm -hmm. And there's a section in your new book, Everything Mind, where you talk about that and you even offer a practice, a shadow work Mm -hmm. practice. And I wonder if you can share with us that practice and how using it has played out in your own life. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's a number of shadow work practices that I have found really beneficial um, in my life. This was one I shared in in the book because it was a, a quicker one, and some of the practice I, practices I share in the book are longer, so I wanted to mix it up and offer some quick and short ones as well. Um, and as I say at the end of that section of the book, um, I think I name a few books or teachers that I encourage people to seek out um, to further develop their own shadow work. But this was really um, a rather simple one that I had learned uh, from a Ken Wilber book. And Ken, as 
anyone who picks up everything mine will see has been an extremely influential teacher in my own life. I was honored to have him write the forward for the book. Um, he's just really opened my eyes to a lot of things and, and my heart, so I'm very grateful to him. Um, but the practice itself, um, I mean, any shadow practice, I guess we can talk about that for a second before we get into it, really uh, aims for us to reown this shadow part of ourselves, the repressed um, things that we've been pushing down since as early as, as our childhood, you know, and most of the time we're not aware of it. So often, just a general example, anytime we feel something welling up within ourselves, it could be good or bad. A lot of people think shadow work and think just negative, but it, it also goes uh, for positive as well. But if we see something in another person or we hear something or maybe even a shirt they're wearing, a style or, or whatever the case may be, and we feel, you know, something inside like, ugh, towards them, and ugh, is it, you know, it's just a very general term I'm using here, but um, that's that's a good indicator that our shadow is acting up. And for me, that's been the most, one of the most important things in my own path is really becoming more familiar with, with that uh, unconscious aspect of myself and working with that. So, the practice that I offer in, in Everything Mind is, again, a really simple one. It starts out that the best time that someone, I, I think at least, can do this practice is either in the morning after they've just woken up and they can take someone uh, that might have appeared in their dreams, for instance, um, or in the evening before they go to bed and you know they can use someone from their day. You can, you know, you sit there, you take a moment, you just look over your day, and you think about any instance that someone or something rubbed you the wrong way. It could be a coworker, family member, whatever the case may be. And then, whenever you have that person in mind, um, I recommend close your eyes, and then you actually mentally face them and and have this little discussion with them. Um, you lay out any thoughts or feelings you have. Um, you know, you have no reason to hold back at this in this practice because it's one that you're you're doing alone. Um, so it's a really great opportunity for us to get very real with whatever our experience was. Now, the the interesting part is after you do that, um, you then place yourself in the position of the other person and you take on their perspective. So your eyes are still closed and you actually. Now imagine yourself as this person looking back at you and you talk to yourself as if you were them. And this can be pretty weird in the beginning for people, um, but I found it's really great as I've worked with it because it helps to take me outside of myself and start seeing uh, another's perspective. And in that other's perspective, I usually find that it's something about myself. It's always something about myself, but it's something that's always been a bit below the surface, and it's just a great way of bringing this shadow aspect, this unconscious aspect to light. Um, and that's really it. It's that simple. Um, there, you know, Like I said, there's a number of other practices, but I really just wanted to give readers a taste of shadow work and this I've I found to be a very user friendly one I've taught it often and people seem to have a pretty good experience with it so I thought that was a good place to start um, and introduce those who aren't familiar with shadow work to it Can you give an example of doing that and what you discovered? Yeah, well there's actually one I share in the book um, 
where I was doing it and I'm trying to think. I, it had to do with a baseball coach, which was um, I, I've always had a uh, a consciousness about my weight um, since man, since really I can remember um, becoming conscious of of myself. And uh, so this goes back to you know late elementary school, early high school, and I've always been a, a heavier set kind of person, um, and it's just become a part of um, something I've had to work through, I guess we can say. So I had uh, it was a dream that I'd had, and let me let me try to remember this so I share it correctly. Um, So I had this dream, and I think it was, I don't remember exactly, so I apologize to anyone who hears this and then reads the book, but it had something to do with, with weight, a weight issue. And, and um, so I was sitting and do, working with that in this shadow work practice that I just shared. And what I remember is that during that shadow work, um, I was just kind of, sometimes for this practice, I'll just use it in general with an emotion, so it might not even be a person. So I'm kind of talking to an emotion. And and the emotion became this little league baseball coach that I had had. I, I grew up playing soccer, and I, I did that straight through middle school. Baseball was something I did for one season, and it ended because of this experience I think I had with this little league coach. But so we had gotten these uniforms, and... I'd put mine on, and it was snug-fitting, and the coach made a joke in front of all the, the players and the assistant coaches, and he called me Crisco. And I, it could have been totally harmless, I don't know, but I, I remember everyone laughing, and that was a really painful experience for me. Um, that That's probably my first experience after that I uncovered doing the shadow work that I traced that back to probably my first real painful experience around body image and and food um and and that came up for me in this shadow work so that was just an example of really how uh how profound this practice can be so you know as with i think most things that we suffer from a lot of it starts in in our very very early years um shadow work for me has uncovered a lot of the problems I, I still struggle with to this day, um, I'm able to see various times in my childhood where they've uh, connected or started. So I'm grateful to the practice for that. I'm sorry I wasn't more eloquent in my explanation. I just uh, I hadn't thought about that since I wrote about it, but that was a big one for me. Mm-hmm. And I actually had that while I was writing the book. That's why it was so great for me. It was pretty fresh. Um, and uh, And yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring up questions of body image and weight and the pain around that, because one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is that in your own biography, you moved from somebody who had, it sounds like, quite a lot of challenges earlier in your life, not just with addiction, but also self-loathing behavior of different kinds, including you know, the extreme of attempting suicide and cutting behavior. And, you know, now as I talk to you as someone in their late 30s who's obviously been through quite a process of recovery and also spiritual awakening and the spiritual journey, you have such a a warmth about you. 
and a kindness. And one of the things that I'm so curious about is how people transform self-judgment in their lives and become more self-compassionate. We can talk mm. about being compassionate towards other people, and, and we'll get there in our conversation. But I'd love to hear more about this transformation in you towards self-compassion. Yeah, and it's still an ongoing process. It's one that's way better today. Um, but I still have my moments where it it's hard. I have some very deeply rooted things within me um, from years of using and, and self-loathing and, and just the way I was living. I was actually just recently, I'm working on a documentary and I was interviewing a friend of mine and we were, and, and they were there with me. He He's actually in recovery now as well, but it was someone that I used to uh, actively use drugs and alcohol with on a very regular basis. And we were talking about a lot of things that I had actually forgotten about. And, you know, I write about a lot of what I went through, but there's still things that will come up and I hear and it's like, oh my God, like, I can't believe I was living that way. Like, for example, he told me, and I can't believe I forgot about this, but there was a period where um, I was living with another roommate, but he was a, we were all close. And so he was over at our apartment quite often, this friend I was filming. But he reminded me that I used to have like 10 or 12 steak knives that I would put on my bed and go to sleep on. Like, that's the way, that's just one of like a, a number of crazy stories and, and just the way I was living. Um, and I, I, this is back in like 2000, 2001, but, you know, to hear that and have not thought about that for many years was, was really difficult. So as soon as I heard that, it starts to bring up, you know, it, it's like, a uh, the door opens for that self-loathing voice that still is down there, um, and likes to rear its ugly head at, at times. But, uh, so compassion is, <laughs> It's a big one for me. The the loving kindness meditation that many teachers teach has been huge for me in my own life because with that practice, and we can talk about that if you want, but with that practice, it starts first and foremost with ourselves. And I was dedicated to doing this practice, so I would <laughs> I would skip over myself in the beginning. I mean, I would do I would do the uh, I would say a nice aspiration towards myself but I would make it quick and then quickly move on and focus on other people. But even just making that one quick acknowledgement towards myself, that was a start. And that's what I often talk to a lot of people who are struggling with this um, or similar things I've gone through is start with what you can, just even if it's just something tiny. And I remember, actually it was a few years ago, I was out at uh, Elephant Journal, or not Elephant Journal, I'm sorry, Yoga Anonymous, nope, Yoga Journal Conference, in Estes Park, Colorado, and I was interviewing Jay Hall. And I remember this was really important for me to hear because it was the night after he had performed. And he was talking about how he still struggles with this. And he still has that voice in his head. And he was telling me about something he had done the night before, which was only the second time he had done that. And at one point during the night, he'll go around and introduce the band. You know, everyone claps and so what he had done that night for only the second time was very quietly away from the mic. He said to himself, thank you, Jai. And that was it. But that was him working, you know, making that step towards extending compassion and love towards himself. And that was really big for me to hear, you know, because someone, you think Jai Utah and anyone who knows his name or the Kirtan, 
uh, music scene. You know, you look at these people and, you, and well, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I think a lot of people look at them and think, ah, oh, you know, they've got it all figured out or they're doing great. But no, not everyone does. So that was really just important for me to hear. Um, but today it's it's not so much baby steps anymore because it's, it's years later and, and I've done a lot of work. Um, but it's really learning, I think, learning to be gentle is just as important as learning to be compassionate um, and, and being easy on ourselves in our process as we're working on compassion, as we're working on loving ourselves, as we're working on forgiving ourselves and healing. Um, yeah, I, it's just, it, it, I have absolutely, it's, it's the hardest thing for me to do is extend that towards myself so I can extend it to others with no problem whatsoever. And I think that's a pretty universal truth for a lot of people, um, that it's just easier to give than to receive. At this point in your life, when that self-judgment comes up, do you have a kind of go-to move, if you will, that you use? Or do you have a a way of working with that, that? Yeah, yeah, I do. It's actually, it's another practice I shared in Everything Mind. Um, and it's inspired by a Dharma talk that I had heard Thich Nhat Hanh give. I don't remember exactly which one. I've listened to so many. But I, what I remember was him saying very simply that he encouraged us to hold our pain in the way a mother would hold a newborn baby. And that just cut right to the core of me when when I heard that. And I really started thinking about that, and I brought it into my meditation, and, and I contemplated on it. And I sort of, from there, came up with this practice that's completely uh, inspired by that. And it, I use it on big and small things. Um, it doesn't matter, and I find it works just as well for all of them. But the two steps are really simply anytime I do become aware of the self-judging thoughts, um, or if there's a painful emotion, a sadness, a depression, whatever it may be, the first step is really closing my eyes and, and becoming intimate with it and familiar with it, allowing whatever the thoughts are saying or the feelings are feeling, allowing them to come up. You know, Because our natural tendency as humans is to just push all of that stuff down. Um, I mean, it's kind of part of our survival instinct. We don't want to feel pain. We you know, we want to feel pleasure, we want to feel happy, but from what I've learned and experienced, it's by com- continuing to suppress whatever's already down there that just keeps us uh, sick and suffering and in pain. So what I do when these things come up is, again, the first step is if I'm able to, if I'm in a setting, say I'm in my apartment, you know, I'll go in a room where I can be quiet and I'll close my eyes and I'll just let it all come up and I won't censor it at all. I will, um, you know, it can be as mean towards me as it wants. But what I do with this is I do my best to anchor myself in in the place of witnessing awareness. So if this thought is saying, you know, you're such a piece of shit for what you did so many years ago, I'm not feeding into that and being, yeah, yeah, I really am. But instead, I'm watching the thought and I'm, you know, from this place of witnessing awareness or I'm watching this feeling of sadness arise. So... If I feel sad, I'm anchored more as the witness of the sadness. And there's a little spaciousness that opens up in between that. I know Eckhart Tolle and a lot of other great teachers talk quite a bit about that. And um, and that's something that's been very 
powerful for me is cultivating the witnessing awareness. Ram Das, you know, talks quite a bit about that as well. So I allow these feelings and thoughts to come up and do my best to just watch them unbiasedly and, and let them do and say what they're going to do and say. And then once I feel as though they've exhausted themselves, the second step is to actually take the words or the sentences or the feelings or any images they conjure up, whatever's in my experience, I take all of it and I literally picture myself wrapping it in a warm white blanket the same way a mother would wrap her newborn child in a blanket. And then I bring it up to my chest and I hold it and caress it just like a mother would hold her newborn baby. And the one caveat I put here is for some people, they've expressed that the pain and the hurt is too much for them. So what I suggest if that's the case is you can still take it and place it in a a baby rocker. Imagine yourself putting it there and, and you're rocking it. So you're still tending to it. It's just not, you know, right there at your chest level. But as so as you hold it, you I suggest what I do is I bring my awareness down into my heart center and I've already allowed my thoughts and my feelings to exhaust themselves. So pretty much at this point my mind is relatively clear and, and quiet. And so I'm able to then sink down into my heart and really just bring my awareness there and anchor into that. And once I feel anchored into that, I then will mentally say something to the effect of, uh, you know, I'm I'm right here with you, and I'm talking to my pain and my emotions at this point. And I say to them, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you're feeling the way you're feeling. I'm sorry that you have not been listened to, felt, um, experienced, whatever the case may be in that moment. Um, And I let them know that I'm there with them. My heart is completely open to them and I am willing to be there with them for as long as they need. And, you know, so again, just something to that effect. I encourage anyone who's listening and wants to try this, just go with your own intuition. And and I find it's pretty easy once you're really centered in your heart to express whatever needs to be expressed towards them. Um, And then that's it. And then once you say whatever it is you feel moved to say towards them, you sit there and you really have your open heart to them and you're showing love towards this pain and and sadness and hurt and whatever else, brokenness that's been there for God knows how long. And it's in that simple act that I find we're completely flipping the script. You know, we're not suppressing them anymore. We're allowing them to be there and we're extending compassion towards them. And basically like 9.9 out of 10 times, very quickly, within one to five minutes, I find that it's almost as if that white blanket kind of falls in on itself. And and that's it. The, the thoughts and the emotions have released themselves. I mean, all they needed was to be heard or experienced. And there have been times where months later it'll come back, and, and, and that's fine. I just do the same thing again. Oftentimes it never comes back. Usually I do find if it does come back, it's significantly less strong than it was. Um but again, if it comes back, I just sit there and I work with it. And But if it's just a negative thought, easy enough. You know, you just take that thought or that feeling and you can do that practice start to finish in one to two minutes. And, and I find a significant shift in what I'm feeling or thinking after that. So, sorry, it's a little long, long-winded for a simple two-step practice. But um, yeah, I've I've had profound effects with that. I've written about that and I've shared that and and it seems like most people that try it really resonate with it and have had some pretty cool experiences too. 
you described it very, very beautifully and in a lot of detail. I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Thanks. The one question that comes up for me mm. are those times in our life when we somehow don't have the resource mm. to move to that witnessing place. Mm. And, and I'm curious if you have that experience and what you might have to say about that. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up because there are times, absolutely, where I can't go there. It's, for me, it's, it's not that often, um, which I'm grateful for because I think I've just gotten used to working with this practice. But for example, uh, this afternoon, maybe like two or three hours ago, I was on a phone call with a dear friend of mine. He's, this, uh, he's an author. His name is Jarvis J. Masters. And he's also an inmate in San Quentin's death row. And um, he's, he's had a, a, a big, big influence in my life and, uh, and helped me in many ways with working through what I've had to work through, uh, through his own writing. But so I was speaking with him and he was in a pretty bad way today. Generally, he's, you know, he's pretty upbeat and, and optimistic, but he was really struggling. He had gotten some good news that uh, he's been on death row for 30, over 30 years now. And uh, the California penal system or court system actually reopened his case in 2011 which is pretty unprecedented for them. Um, it's just that the evidence is so overwhelming of his innocence that they were kind of backed into a corner and forced to reopen it. So he got this news uh, less than a month ago that um, they've been going through all these court appeals and, and processes, and, and I don't know a lot of the jargon, so I won't try to pretend like I do, but the long short of it is that sooner than later, they're going to finally be moving into the final stages of this process. And it, what he found out from his attorneys was they could really start going into it almost uh, within a month or two. But his attorneys have other things they're doing. Uh, you know, uh, they have vacations coming up. And, um, and this was very, very upsetting to him. And he was expressing this to me. You know, I, I could hear the pain. He was tearing up at times. Um, you know, he's talking about how people don't understand. I've, I've been living on death row for over 30 years, innocent of this crime. I don't deserve to be here. And this was one of the rawest times I've ever heard him talk to me about this. And uh, I, I, I just felt his pain. And I remember him saying, he's like, what do I do? What do I do with this? And I, and I told him, I'm like, you know, I respect you enough, Jarvis, that I will not bullshit you right now. I don't know what you do with that. I would, I would not insult him by saying, sit with it, bring it into your meditation practice. You know, of course, for some people, maybe that would work, but I tried to put myself in his position and really picture myself sitting in this tiny cell for 30 years, knowing that I did not deserve to be there. And finally, there's a real light at the end of the tunnel, a very real chance that maybe, you know, I could be free, but that my attorneys are going on vacations and this and that. And I didn't know what to say to him, but but I would not I would not tell him like you know just meditate or just use this loving kindness meditation or or what I just shared with you the the compassion practice. Um, so what do we do in those cases? You know I, I think it's different for everybody. Sometimes we just need to turn the music up really loud and deal with it that way. Sometimes maybe we just need to put something funny on and come back to it later when we can. I know that sounds like a form of aversion, and maybe in a way it is, 
But, you know, there are those times where really, really heavy things come up and we just can't sit with them in the moment. And there have been times where, like I said, I've had that happen and I've tried to sit with certain things and it just makes it, it it's like it fuels it that much more. And, uh, and so I have to get up and, and step away from either meditation or practice. And I'll do like, like I just said, maybe I'll pick up my guitar or I'll play the drums or I'll go out for a run or do whatever I have to do. So, yes, I, I absolutely would say that there are times, at least in my experience, where some things are really big and we just can't sit with them in the moment. And that's okay. It doesn't make us any less spiritual. Thank you. Thank you for that. Hmm. I'm wondering, Chris, if you can help maybe fill in some of the gaps here for our listeners who might be wondering, how did this young person go from the despair and depths of pain of being suicidal to here offering so much spiritual wisdom? And, you know, what the relationship has been to your own process of spiritual awakening and recovery from addiction, how you would describe that? Yeah, in my case, it took a complete and utter brokenness. Um, I stepped onto the spiritual path shortly after I stepped into recovery, which was you know, about 12 years ago. Um, but it took me many years to finally get to the place, basically four years ago, where I ended up in a completely broken hopeless, just despair-filled state after a relapse that once again all but took my life. You know, I it, it was frustrating and interesting to live up to that point because, like I said, I, I, was, uh, I was doing some practices. I was learning meditation and mantra and exploring different wisdom traditions. And, uh, and it was definitely not for nothing because I was learning some, some really great things. Seeds were being planted. But I, I was not quite ready to go to these raw and vulnerable places within myself where all of that wreckage of the past laid, all the things that I'd, I'd been continuing to suppress. And so inevitably I would relapse and end up back in an emergency room or a psych hospital or a jail cell, detox, whatever the case may be, and start the whole process over. And this was until this final time where I, I woke up again in another jail cell and it was after a blackout drunk and I didn't know how I'd gotten there. And uh, this was the first time out of all the times I'd relapsed that I had no semblance of hope whatsoever. Every time prior to that, there wasn't a lot of hope, but there was always like this little flicker of a candle within that, you know, it just let me know, like, you're going to bounce back. It's okay. It's going to be tough, but you'll come back from this. And this was the first time that that was not there. And I remember they released me the following morning from that jail cell on a promise to appear or a PTA, um, for what I'd been arrested for, which was a DUI, um, which is, <laughs> talk about guilt, there's another thing. I've had a lot of work, uh, or, or a lot of, uh, just a struggle working through the fact that I would drive under the influence like that, but um, I can't change that today. Um, I just try to make a living amends and do what I can do. Um, but so, you know, they released me, and I went into a detox the that morning, and again, in this broken, hopeless despair-filled state 
while I was in that detox, I found out I lost my job. Um, I missed my brother's wedding where I was supposed to be his best man. It was just, you know, it was like I'd hit this rock bottom and the bottom gave out. Um, and from there, I had a two-day window of going to treatment. I was living in Connecticut at this point, and they wanted to get me out of state, so they found an inpatient treatment program in New Jersey. But there was a two-day window between me leaving Connecticut uh, until I could get on the bus and, and head down to New Jersey. So I stayed with a friend and proceeded to just get completely blackout drunk for those two days. I, I don't remember any of it. I barely remember boarding the bus. I had a layover in New York, which I don't remember that at all. I lost my luggage there. Um, and my next real memory is waking up in, in treatment Somehow, I mean, talk about grace, but somehow I actually made it on this bus trip to New Jersey and was picked up by a clinician's assistant. I don't remember that happening, but I woke up this uh, this next morning and another clinician assistant came in and the door slammed and that's what opened me up. He threw a pair of shorts down on the ground and he said, wake up, you pissed yourself last night, put these on, it's time to go to group. And that's how I, I started, you know, this final time in treatment. And uh, and I can kind of laugh at that today. And it's it's slightly embarrassing sharing that. But at the same time, you know, I try to be pretty honest about my experience so people understand just how ugly addiction can get. And again, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But, you know, that's, that's part of what happened for me. Uh, and so I, I started treatment completely broken. And I, you know, I it was horrible. The first few weeks I started going through withdrawals again, so they had to put me on this benzodiazepine taper, which it's medication to keep me from having a seizure because I had a history of those from the way I was drinking and, and using drugs. So um, I barely made it through the first few weeks, but I did. And it was roughly around that time where I started to slightly feel human again that uh, the clinical director noticed a Medicine Buddha tattoo that I had had um, I'd gotten that after taking my Bodhisattva vows some years ago in a really beautiful Medicine Buddha ceremony I was a part of. Um, but obviously it didn't sink in well enough. So he, anyways, he noticed this tattoo, and, he, and he, going back to Jarvis, actually, he asked me if I'd ever read Finding Freedom by Jarvis J. Masters, which I hadn't, um, but I was familiar with Jarvis because Pema Chodron speaks of him often in her talks, and she wrote the foreword for his second book, and she's his teacher. Um, she actually goes out and visits him one or two times a year in San Quentin. So I knew who he was, but uh, I had not read his stuff. So this clinical director said, I'm going to bring this book in for you, and, and I ask you to read it. And, and so I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. And that's really what started to shift everything for me. You know, I read this book about this man who went to prison for a crime he did commit, originally sentenced to like eight years, but while there was accused of sharpening a spear that was used in the murder of a guard um, that was on duty, and uh, and that's how he ended up getting the death sentence, even though the person who committed the crime and who organized it did not get the death sentence, but I'm not going to go into more details than that, but it's just pretty mind-boggling to me. But this man while there, ends up finding a, a magazine, and in the magazine, you know, he can write away for a free Buddhist book, which he did, and he ends up learning about Buddhism, and uh, and he has a Rinpoche start coming in and teaching him, and he takes his Bodhisattva vows, and he's living on death row at this point, and I just, you know, he shared these stories in that book about 
cultivating his practice and finding his own freedom in 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 San Quentin's death row. I mean, one of the most darkest and desolate places I, I could imagine, and and that was very profound for me. It really helped put into perspective where I was at in my life. And it was it wasn't great, but it helped kind of get me off that pity pot of you know woe is me. Um, I, I still had a lot, a lot of sadness and anger and hurt, but that was what rekindled some hope for me. And and from there, I really started uh, getting more involved in treatment while I was there and, and participating. And it was a slow process, but one that I did. And and then I moved home after that, which was humbling because I moved back to Connecticut and I had to move in with my parents. Uh, you know, around 31 or 32 years old, something like that. And um, I had no job. I had to file for unemployment. My car was repossessed while I was gone. I literally moved back home with nothing. But it was a real gift of of that brokenness and despair that completely just cracked all this armor I'd been putting up over my heart wide open. And for the first time ever, I was inspired and I felt like I really could begin to start doing that internal work that I'd been scared to do. Maybe I wasn't even aware of it, but in retrospect, I say I just, I was scared. I was scared to go there and touch those places and and begin to get intimate with that pain and, and the things that I had done to others and that others had done to me and just all of life's shit that we all, we all have experiences. So that, that was kind of the beginning of it for me. And, and it's just been, an ongoing process since then, fine-tuning and, and working with whatever comes up in the moment. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. In the beginning of your new book, Everything Mind, you're talking about recovering from addiction and being a recovering yeah. addict. And you talk about a conversation that you had with Father Thomas Keating, mm. a, a teacher of Centering Prayer, a beautiful elder. And yeah. you quote him saying, quote, I'm in recovery too, but from the human condition and the addictive process that we all seem to suffer from in yeah. varying degrees of severity. And I wanted to talk to you some about that, the addictive process and mm. how you've come to understand that, not necessarily in your life in the same way as being addicted to substances, but just putting the addictive process under a magnifying glass, if you will, and, mm. and how you've come to understand that. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Um, thank you for sharing that that quote from from the lovely Father Thomas Keating, who I adore. Um, and and as as simple and obvious as that sounds, you know, when he said that, it was just like a light went off for me. And it was in hearing that that it helped me see, wow, I can take these experiences that I have of addiction with drugs and alcohol, but I can use them in a way 
that potentially and hopefully will help others shine a light on whatever their own recovery process is. Um, you know, we're all addicted to something. It's just part of the human condition. We feel pain. We feel suffering. And like I said earlier, you know, we it's just our natural human tendency that we don't want to feel that way. So we're trying, or I'll speak in, in, in I statements here, but I was trying to find a way to feel happy and to feel some sense of contentment which I was not feeling if I unless I was using drugs or alcohol. I was feeling sad, I was feeling depressed, I was feeling hurt, I was feeling angry. It was just a lot of ugliness that was stored up inside of me. Um so I you know, I was meeting my need, my human need of peace or or comfort in drugs and alcohol. Other people do it in other ways, whether it's food or shopping or sex, TV, video games, even spirituality, spiritual practices could fall into that category. Exercise. Um, I think all of it can be done in an addictive manner. Um, Not to say, obviously, everyone that does it is addicted to it, but really, we can take almost anything and, and have it become an addiction if it's taking us to a place where we're trying to meet that need of finding peace and comfort and happiness. And so in my experience, and, and I mean, this is nothing new. You'll probably hear almost any spiritual teacher say this, but we can truly only find that lasting peace and contentment within ourselves. And what I what I personally mean by that is in working with these places of hurt that we have and have had for in many cases, many years. You know, they've just been in there for so long. And it's really only through, I again, my experience, but working through them and, and beginning to heal them that we can start to have the experience of more freedom and more compassion towards ourselves and towards others. You know, the, the, I I fell into the trap of trying to find my peace and happiness in external things, Um whether it was even a new zafu or a new spiritual book or a new guitar or a you know whatever the case may be um and it would bring happiness for that moment but you know it's it's always short-lived because all of these things external to ourselves they're all fleeting and they're all temporary so i you know I, i'm sure it has a tendency to sound cliche when we say you know you're only going to find true happiness within but i I believe that maybe a greater truth has never been spoken. You know, really, where else can you find it in a lasting way, in, in a very sincere, deep way? So for me, that's 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 where it is. And I still watch myself. Um, I, will, I go through very weird phases with eating to this day still, where I will eat in an addictive way. Um, I will have months where I'm great and I eat healthy, I'm usually always exercising. That's a part of my own recovery process. Um, But there will be times where I will still eat, whether it's for a couple of weeks or even maybe a month, off and on in uh, the same way that I used to use drugs or alcohol. You know, it was just, it was never enough. Even using this food example, even if I'm full, I'm still every 15, 20 minutes, half an hour going back to grab like, a cookie or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, just something to put inside of myself um, to make me feel happy for for a few seconds. But then, of course, later on with that comes the negative self-talk. Like, 
you know, oh, I can't believe you did that again, failure, blah, blah, blah. Um, luckily, though, I haven't had that in quite a while. It's been at least a year, I think, for the most part, which is great. But, you know, that's just my example. Addiction, addictive processes are all around us. I love, when I when I first read The Power of Now years ago, very early on in my spiritual path, you know, listening to Eckhart Tolle talk about thinking as an addictive process. You know, that's mm-hmm. how true is that for so many people? We're constantly talking to ourselves and we're not able to stop it. So, you know, we're addicted to thinking. So again, I, I believe we all have our addictive processes, but, you know, the question is, what are you going to do with it? And And that's up to each of us on an individual level. One of the things I love, Chris, about the new book, Everything Mind, is that it's filled with many short practices, many practices that are very accessible and, dare I say again, user-friendly. But one of them <laughs> one of them that you offer is a practice for supporting oneself and not falling back into addiction, at least the way I understood the practice, that you call checking yourself. Mm. And I wonder if you can describe that to our listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for, for bringing that one up. Um, it, that's one actually that comes right from the 12-step fellowship itself, um, or at least that's where I first became familiar with it. But it's really um, taking a look at ourselves and our actions and, and what we've done. Um, I, I recommend it, it as a daily practice, uh, especially for those who are in recovery, whether it's from drugs and alcohol or eating or you know whatever the case may be. Thinking. Uh Thinking, sure. <laughs> Thinking, absolutely. Um, but really, at the end of the day, and again, this is another quick one. It, it could be done within like five minutes max. But just review the day and think about, all right, was there a time where I might have been shitty towards someone else? Maybe I said something I didn't need to say. Or maybe I acted in a way that I didn't need to act. Um, you know, was there a way or something, was there something that happened today where I could have been more skillful in my actions. Um, and not not every day there's going to be that, um, and that's fine. But some days there are, a lot of days there are. Um, and so what we do is we just kind of go back through our day and, and mentally know, all right, here's where I could have been better, or here's what I could have said differently. And in most cases, I, I encourage people just to make a, a simple amends, for lack of a better word. You know, that might even make it sound like a grander gesture than it actually is. But you know, say it's a coworker and you said something a little snooty. Maybe the next day when you go in and see them, just say, hey, you know, sorry about what I said yesterday or, or how I acted towards that. You know, just acknowledging it more than anything. And, and you know, nine out of ten times they'll be like, all right, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And um, it's really just owning our behaviors and our actions and becoming more familiar with them, not in a way where we're going to become more self-criticizing or judgmental. Again, this goes back to compassion and gentleness for ourselves, but really just becoming more aware of of how we are um, towards ourselves and towards others. So as we're doing this practice, we can also know, you know, I could have been better towards myself in this way today and make an amends towards yourself. Why not? Um, I don't know if I wrote that in the book. I hope I did, but um, I might have overlooked that part. But that's really, that's the practice. And the reason I think it's extra important for those in recovery is because it's little, little things that generally will take people out on a relapse. Um, A lot of people have this naive vision that it's something big like the loss of a loved one that will make someone relapse. And of course, that does happen. 
But what it, at least from the people I've watched go out, and these could be people who have one to 15 or 20 years clean. Uh, it's it's pretty crazy, but people still relapse um, with that much sobriety time. But it's it's a number of little things that have gone unchecked that end up adding up. And so the way to stay on top of that is just making these little amends. But again, that's it's not just a practice for those in recovery. I did learn it in the the 12-step fellowship, but I, you know, I remember talking to my mom about that many years ago and she's like, "Oh my god, that's great." And that's when I was like, "You know, yeah, it is great. Like this is totally applicable for anybody. You know, it's not just a recovery practice." So, that's why I was really happy uh to share it in the book. I think one of the things that I appreciated about it so much was also understanding this link between feeling slightly guilty or off or bad about myself and addictive behavior, mm. how those mm. things go together. Mm. Is that right. making sense, what I'm saying? Yes, be, right, because it goes back to me to like, I'm feeling bad, but I want to feel happy, so what am I going to do to feel happy? You know, and, and we're a culture that is just, we want what we want when we want it, instant gratification. Um, so, you know, I'm feeling bad. I want to feel happy. I'm going to, and like throwing myself under the bus, I'm going to go eat a cookie because I want to feel happy right now. Um, you know, but really what I could be doing, and, and I'm sure these are times where I'm doing that, where I'm not on top of, you know, doing a daily, uh, or checking myself, you know, really going through this daily inventory. Um, you know, I, I love that I could share these practices, but I'm not going to sit here and tell everyone I'm perfect. I do them daily. It's, you know, life's great. No, I do my best, and I really, they're all practices I work with and incorporate, and they've made my life way better. You know, I look back four years ago versus today, waking up in that jail cell, which I know is not a lot of time, but still, in those in those four years, it's miraculous uh, what has shifted and changed, and it's all thanks to these practices and, and really taking the time to work with them in my life. So, Chris, as I'm as I'm listening to you, I'm I guess I'm a little stunned here. You've actually only been totally clean from we can say abusing drugs and alcohol for four years. Yes, yeah, it was last week, uh, July twenty seventh, that I celebrated my four year sober anniversary. Now, going going back, you know, from when I first stepped in the first place to recovery. I would cultivate or, or, you know, have like a year clean here or there. So it wasn't like I was completely in addiction up until four years ago. But yes, I've never had, with the exception of these four years, more than tops a year clean at a time. So yeah, it's it's been four years. Do you have any fear of a relapse? Um, it, it, yeah, absolutely. There's no one that's in recovery that is not free from the possibility of relapsing. I mean, fear is, fear is a strong word, so I don't know that I would say I'm, I'm scared of it, but I recognize that it is an absolute reality in my life. As I, as I was sharing before with this practice, I've seen people with 15, 20, 25 years relapse. So if you suffer from the addiction of, or the disease of addiction, then yeah, it's, it's a reality, absolutely, that if you're not taking care of yourself, and doing what you need to do, that you have the potential of relapsing. In Everything Mind, you point to a type of warriorship, and you use that word on a couple of occasions, that's required both in recovery and on the spiritual path. 
And I wonder, I'd love to hear more about what warriorship means to you. Mm. Well, I, I think I'd reference that in, in, um, in a way that Chogyam Trungpa talks about it. And it's not like the big sword-yielding, you know, warrior chopping heads off kind of thing, but, you know, more of creating and, and cultivating this gentleness with ourselves and this fearlessness. Now, fearlessness is a big word, but, you know, the the willingness maybe to go within and really work with all of the things I've been talking about already, the the pain, the suffering, whatever the case may be, whether it's past or present, but being a warrior in that sense and the fact that we're willing to go there and to sit with that discomfort and that pain in the moment and tend to it and really be there with it. So that's that's what I mean in, in that regard. One of the things I, I notice in our conversation is that you're willing to be quite vulnerable and expose yourself in a certain kind of way, expose your, your own vulnerabilities in a way that I think is pretty unusual. It seems to me that that's also an aspect of the warriorship that you seem to be demonstrating. Oh, you know, thank you. I, I don't know that I've looked at it like that, but I that means a lot to hear that. I A lot of people who've read, you know, Indie Spirituals, my first book, and who've had a chance to look at everything mind, have commented on that. And it's not easy to put myself out there in such a transparent way, like a, such a raw and, and vulnerable way. But that's so important for me um, to really lay it all out there. I, I, it's important for me for people to see my flaws and my humanity um, because those are things I think that's the place where I, it gives me the ability to really connect in the most authentic way with others. Um, probably I, I receive more emails or letters or, or messages, whatever the case may be, um, with people talking about how they really connected with what they'd read for me um, at that level, a place where they were grateful to have read about, you know, this quote-unquote spiritual teacher who still struggles with things and, and isn't afraid to share about that and, and really be real about their humanity. Um, and and I'm grateful for that. In the beginning, truth be completely told, when I started writing my first book, I, you know, I didn't go to school for writing. I I still at times can have trouble calling myself a writer. Um, but what I what I tried to do to make up for that was really just lay it all out there as raw as I could in a way that I hoped would help other people, you know, who read it that were going through similar things that I had gone through or family members. Um, I've, I've received a lot of emails and messages from aunts, uncles, parents of people that have struggled with addiction or self-harm, depression, things of that nature, and were able to really connect with the raw style um, and, and just the vulnerable aspect of that. A lot of people uh, from jail will write me or who've just gotten out of jail, you know, and, and hey, I found your book here and me and some friends were reading it, et cetera, et cetera. That, that kind of thing means the world to me um, because I, I understand that pain and that suffering and, and the places that they're in. So it's, you know, I was actually talking with my professor. I went down and visited her a few weeks ago, a woman that I hadn't seen in many years. Um, and she's the one who first set me on this path uh, many, many years ago with a book she loaned me. And we were talking about her and her own uh, practice, um, therapy practice, and 
she was saying that she got into it, one, because she was more interested in not doing harm, um, because she was seeing so much harm being done with other therapists and their clients, uh, but more so than that, because she could sit in hell with those people, you know, when they're when they're feeling that pain and that suffering. With what she had gone through in her life, she was able to sit there in that hell in a very real way, in a very empathetic way. And when she said that, that really resonated with me because I I feel I have that ability too. And and as much as it it was very painful going through what I've gone through, um, I'm grateful for that aspect because. A lot of people tend to feel connected with me um, because of that. And so I'm grateful for that, that I can connect with them in that place. But then from there, let's what can we do to heal and move forward and reduce that suffering and, and cultivate, you know, again, that warriorship of, of being willing to be with ourselves in the moment, good, bad, ugly, otherwise. So, yeah. Now, one of the things I'm curious about, Chris, because I'm, for whatever reason, thinking of a couple of people I know who are parents mm. and who have adult children who are struggling with some serious addictions. And I know the pain of those parents and their sense of helplessness, but at the same time, mm-hmm. of course, they want to help their children and, and would do anything they could. And I know you work as a counselor with people in recovery and also probably with situations like this with parents who are struggling in such a context. What would be your advice for those parents? Yeah, I I, I get those emails and, and questions a lot. Um, and And I can certainly empathize with that because I know the pain that I put my own parents through and it's heartbreaking to me. Like there's a lot of guilt around that I've had to work through. Um, one of the first things I tell parents in those situations is don't forget to take care of yourself in the moment, which I know sounds completely counterintuitive. But when you know parents have a, a child that is struggling, of course that's their main concern. And to the point where they're not taking care of themselves anymore, they're losing sleep, they're not eating right, they're not they're not healthy in, in any level. And I, and I. You know, it's easy for me to sit here and say that, but, you know, putting myself in those shoes, I've never been in them. Um, but what I can say is it's so important, I believe, first and foremost, to make sure you are not forgetting to take care of yourself in that position. Because that way, then you can also be coming to the situation with your child from the healthiest possible uh clarity, the, the mental clarity and physical health um, that you can now, <laughs> this is tricky, um, and and tricky because I remember I'm thinking of a conversation I had with a woman. Um, this was about two years ago, and she came to a book signing I did for for my first book, and she was telling me about her son who was struggling. Um, he was just back from Florida, and he was in a relapse to heroin, and he was staying with them for a little while, and she didn't know what to do, and um, you know, so I. I of course, she had a copy of my book. I gave her my phone number. I said, I'd be happy to talk to him. Um, but regarding her, you know, I, I kind of told her, please don't forget to take care of yourself. I, I suggest, and I always suggest, there are really wonderful support groups out there, things like Al-Anon or other related groups that you can find just by simply doing a Google search, where 
you can connect with other people that are going through what you've gone through um, or may still be going through what you're going through and learn from them as well directly, you know, because they've gone through it. I I can only talk about what I've seen or heard. I have not actually gone through that. Um, But in this particular case, you know, uh, so I suggested those things, and of course I wished her all the best, and and I hoped to see her from her son. But I knew the reality of it was I probably wouldn't, because usually someone who's still active, they're not able or willing to reach out for help, and I speak from experience with that. Um, But it was a few weeks later... Uh, now, this woman was actually a friend of my mom's, or, or a friend of a friend of my mom's. And so it was a few weeks later that I heard from my mom um, that she found out that they found uh, her son dead in their bathroom of an overdose and still had the needle in his arm and just another tragic, unnecessary loss. And And that's the reality of it. And I hate saying things like that, but we have to be really realistic about what's going on with addiction and what the the very real potential outcome could be and that's death and you know so for parents i i I share that because they also i think it's very important to learn about boundaries and codependency and enabling you know and and any one of those things could be an entire conversation in and of themselves but you know, for any parent who's listening um, and who's not familiar with those terms, please do Google search codependency or enabling, you know, because these are important things. A lot of times these children that are struggling with addiction are still living at home. And that makes it easier for them to continue with those behaviors. I know it was, uh, in my case, when I was very early in my addiction, um, I was at my parents and it got to a point eventually where they had to which was very hard for them, but they had to uh, draw that line in the sand, and I wasn't allowed to live at home. And when you start putting those kinds of, uh, when you bring that, you know, into the equation, it makes it harder for the addict to continue their behavior. Sure, they might move out on the streets and continue there, but that's in a lot of cases only going to last so long until they will finally at least check themselves into a detox. Um, if not just to get off the street for a little bit. And in that detox, that's where the seeds start getting planted um, about recovery. And the drugs are out of their system at least, usually for five days. And they'll, for the first time in a long time, start to have a clear head. That's what happened for me. And it was in that that first experience that those initial recovery seeds were planted. Again, I, I ended up in a cycle of relapsing, but... Luckily, I didn't die from one of those relapses. So, you know, that that's just a bit. I That's a really tough one for me to talk about because then I automatically start thinking about my own parents and what I put them through. But self-care is big and, and really learning about the disease of addiction, what's going on in their children's lives, how are they possibly enabling that, what they can do to stop enabling that, um, if they're being codependent in that addiction relationship with them, and if so, how can they stop that? I think those are all some really great initial things to take a look at. Okay, Chris, just two more questions, and we'll yeah, we'll sure. shut this down. The first is, why did you decide to call the new book Everything Mind? And what do you <laughs> mean by that? Well, I have to thank Sounds True for that, because, we, you know, I had a few initial ideas for the names, and, and you know, People there like them, but they weren't sure it was going to work, and so it was a collaborative effort. Collaborative effort coming up with that, and one that I uh, 
as soon as as I heard it, you know, I was like, yeah, I think that's the one. And and it made sense to me, you know, because that's just the way I I live. Everything mind, it's it's everything. Everything is part of the path. The good, the bad, all of it is part of our spiritual journeys. And I've found in a lot of cases people tend to compartmentalize spirituality and you know, they think it's only for the times that they're formally meditating or maybe in yoga class or visiting with a sangha, whatever the case may be. But in my experience, there's not a time where spirituality, and, and I'm that even that's just a word, but you know we need to use words to communicate. So there's not a time where spirituality is not happening. Um, so again, the dark and the light. I, I In the book, I talk about a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, and he and it's just a simple uh, quote. He says, "No mud, no lotus," and I love that, you know, because that resonates definitely for me in my own life. And and through that, you know, I I I take it as him talking about our our greatest selves are cultivated and grow from our darkest places. They become our greatest teachers. Um, I think of a I'm thinking of another quote from Ram Das where he says, "Suffering is the in, uh, or suffering is the sandpaper of our incarnation." It does its job of shaping us. And I love that, you know, because, again, that resonates very true for me. So that suffering, that pain, that darkness, it's its just as much a part of the spiritual path as any of the good stuff. They're, you know, they're all equal in, in the path. And and I think Ken does a really great job at, at talking about everything mind as well. Um, I, I liked how he wrote in his foreword something in effect of it's just another way of, saying you know, the ground of all being or Buddha nature, Brahman, Godhead. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's all, it, it's all part of it. It's all, it's all everything mind. Okay. One last question for you, Chris. Yeah. I think maybe one of the biggest transformations that I felt in reading everything mind was your transformation from being primarily more self-involved and self-centered to becoming really focused on other people and other people's happiness and experience. And I've even felt that in this conversation, your sense of caring about what it was like for your parents and caring about your friend in prison. And I'd love to know what you think made that move in your life how it is that you moved, because I think so many of us find ourselves, unfortunately, being quite self-centered a lot, and it's painful. Mm. We don't want to be. So how did that move happen for you? Mm. Well, you know, I I was living so self-centered for so long in the way that I, I was living with the drugs and the alcohol. I was only concerned with getting high and, and you know, and anything or anyone that stood in my way to hell with them. Um <clears throat> And and that's pretty much out of character for who I've been most of my life. I've always had a genuine heart and compassion for other people, um, but living like that for so long, you know, it just it's just how it was for me. So once I really sincerely started doing the inner work, um, that I believe is what made it possible for me to truly start extending the care and compassion towards others. I mean, it's always easier or it's often easier for me to do that than to bring it inward towards myself. But it was in really working with that and getting better at 
learning to love myself and learning to be compassionate with myself that I could then truly extend that out into the world towards other people. One of the, the really profound teachings in my life is uh, one that Maharaji gave to Ram Das, simply love, serve, remember. You know, love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. And the service part is a huge aspect of it. Uh, a lot of teachers talk about service. Recovery, 12-step talks about service. It's just serving others. And I know that there is a tendency for a lot of people, uh, particularly early on in spiritual paths, to get a little narcissistic in our in our practice. You know, am I, am I far enough along? Am I doing this right? You know, it's very me, 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 me. That's okay. It's part of the path, and, and I get it. I know I, I experienced it too. Um, but to bring greater awareness to that as we're moving forward and to make sure we're balancing the inner work, which we need to do, of course, uh, with some outer work, with being service of others. Karma yoga, you know, what can I do today to be of service to others? Uh, For me, I try to volunteer time in detoxes and rehabs or, you know, speak at, at various events. You know, sometimes they're paid, that's great. Sometimes they're not, and that's okay too. Like, just making myself available to others. I I respond to every email I get. It's it's very time consuming, but it's important for me to to respond, you know, and and I say that because a lot of these emails are from people that are either directly struggling with addictions or you know, self-harm, cutting, depression, whatever the case may be, or from family members of those that are struggling. And so that to me is is an act as well of service, of taking time to to write them and, and share whatever comes up for me in the moment that I feel I can offer them and and hopefully have some kind of impact or, or be of some service and help to them. Um, so so that's that's a huge part. Some people find their their path completely in service and and just offering themselves to others. You know, again, karma yoga. That's that's it's one of the paths. So um, for me, it's it's not the only part of my path, obviously, but it's a big one. And I think for me, it's just, I again, going back to how I lived for so long, so self-involved and selfish, like, that's why it's very important for me to to make some amends in that area. Um, at first, I was consciously doing it because I wanted to try to make up for the way I lived, but now it's just a natural part of my being. You know, I just, I really just want to help other people. That is the most important thing to me period. Like, I get to speak at some cool events. That's exciting. It's cool. Like, people say, isn't it really great? You know, you can walk into a bookstore and see your book get there. And yes, that's neat. But hands down, the absolute greatest thing to me at all is the fact that I can, in some small way, help another person. I am able to do that. And anyone can do that. You you don't have to write a book. You don't have to be some spiritual teacher. Anyone can help another person. You know, any small act who knows the ripple effects that that will have. So, oh yeah, service work. Very, very important and big part of my life. I've been speaking with Chris Grosso. He's the author of a new book called Everything Mind. What I've learned about hard knocks, spiritual awakening, and the mind-blowing truth of it all. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being so genuine and straightforward. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I'm very grateful. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.